Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lucouture. Today, the Bank of Canada delivers another rate hike. We know inflation's too high, and we know it's hitting you everywhere. Bank Governor Tiff Macklem warns of an economic downturn as he moves to cool, sky-high inflation. What's at stake and what's in store for Canadians? We'll get some answers from the Associate Finance Minister and the opposition. Then back in Canada and facing charges. It's important that people who travel for the purpose of, su of supporting terrorism uh, face consequences. Two Canadian women released from an ISIS detention camp in Syria have been arrested in this country. One of them has been charged with terrorism. We'll bring in the lawyer representing the other woman who says she was lured to Syria to marry an ISIS fighter. Plus, Royal Rumble on Parliament Hill as the Bloc Québécois calls to cut ties with the monarchy. My only true allegiance is to the people and the nation of Quebec. The Bloc claims the constitutional form of government is racist and slave-driven. Does the Bloc have a point, or was their failed motion just a political stunt? Their deputy leader joins the press gallery. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. There is no easy out to restoring price stability. Uh, we, we actually do need to slow the economy to relieve the price pressures. But when we get through this slowdown, growth's going to pick up, the economy is going to grow solidly, and we're going to have low and predictable inflation. That's the destination. That was Governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, justifying his rate hike earlier today. Uh, yes, the key lending rate is going up, but not by as much as some had expected. While economists were predicting a 75 basis point hike, today's decision will raise it by just 50, or a half percentage point. The central bank's interest rate now stands at 3.75%. The hike is to fight inflation, which, as of last month, sits at 6.9%. This is the sixth time this year the Bank of Canada raised its rate. In 2022 alone, the rate has gone up by a staggering 3.5%. Inflation is starting to ease in Canada, so will today's interest rate hike be the last one this year? Or should Canadians keep bracing for higher rates? Let's find out. Joining me now in studio from BNN Bloomberg, David George Kosh. Thank you so much for being here. You were there for the rate announcement they went with 50, pay, uh, 50 basis point hike, um, but many were expecting 75. So Tiff Macklem did also signal that you know, more could be coming. Why not just rip off the Band-Aid at this point? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. And I think really the Bank of Canada has this delicate balancing act as to whether or not it wants to move interest rates higher, as high as it can go. But that does, uh, they do so at the risk of plunging the ca uh, Canadian economy into a potential recession mm -hmm. um, that could last for quite a long time. But if they don't do it fast enough, then inflation will not go down as much as Canadians would like to have. So essentially, I think what today's announcement reflects 
Is the bank taking a little bit of their foot off the gas pedal and trying to acknowledge how rates have come up so quickly, so fast over the course of the past eight months, looking at how the economy is absorbing those rate hikes and trying to get a better idea as to, as to how inflation will fare going forward while signaling that while, they, while the job isn't over yet, they have also signaled that the end of this rate hike cycle that we're currently on is ending quite soon. So some good news for Canadians in that. Some of the bad news is he did mention, actually didn't mention the R word, recession, but did talk about negative GDP growth in the next year. So is the governor of the Bank of Canada trying to be realistic, but also at the same time calm fears? Yeah, certainly. Economists, as well as the IMF, I believe, are actually signaling that the Canadian economy will enter a recession over the course of 2023. The Bank of Canada, however, is taking not a more of a direct approach and stating that. They say that the Canadian economy is going to stall in 2023, giving a projection and outlook of about 0.9% in 2023. That will double to about 2% in 2024. That being said, Mr. Macklem did signal that the chances of two to three quarters of negative economic growth, which is what a recession is defined in, those chances are just as likely as seeing sluggish economic growth over those next two, three quarters in 2023. So essentially, it's kind of a coin flip whether or not Canada will enter a recession. And again, that comes back to that delicate balancing act that the bank is trying to do in order of moving rates high, combating high inflation, but also not pushing Canadian economic growth into severe uh, contraction, which the bank doesn't necessarily see at this point. So I guess it could be a bit of good news if Canadians want to look at it that way, or negative news if they want to look at it that way. Yeah, and it is, certainly there's a lot of other factors that contribute here. What will energy prices do over right. the course of the next uh, while? How other commodity prices will fare? That will all contribute to essentially how inflation will move and whether or not the Canadian economy will actually be in a growth uh, story over the coming year as well. BNM Bloomberg's David George Kosh, thank you for breaking it all down and being in the studio with us. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Well, higher interest rates added some fuel to the already fiery debate on the cost of living in the House of Commons. Opposition leaders pressed the Prime Minister for solutions. Have a listen. And today, rates went up another half point, meaning many families will be handing in their keys to the banks because they won't be able to afford those bills. The Prime Minister's own former economic advisor has raised concerns of increased household costs because of interest rates going up. He says an average family with a new mortgage before today's new increase could see an increase of $11,000 in extra costs to their annual budget. So with the Bank of Canada raising its benchmark rate for the sixth time this year, will the government pivot to address the potential fallout from higher interest rates? Let's find out. Joining me now is Associate Finance Minister Randy Boissonneau. Welcome, Minister. Now, interest rates are up again. So I imagine officials at the Department of Finance aren't really shocked about this. But how does this change the calculation as you craft that fall economic statement? Well, Michael, it's a really good question, and uh, I'm pleased to be on, on the show. The Bank of Canada is independent, as you know, and what we're doing as a government on the fiscal side is striking the right balance between making sure that we provide targeted supports to Canadians who need it the most during this time of, of rising inflation, but also making sure that we don't stoke the, the inflationary fires. And, you know, we invested in Canadians during the pandemic so we could have the economy come back, and the economy has come back. But what's happened is we have a really slow set of supply chains opening up around the world after the pandemic. The war in Ukraine with the increased prices in energy and food 
plus also the fact that the COVID zero policy really keeps supply chains snarled in China is really leading to uh, high inflation around the world. And so we will be able to identify measures in the fall economic statement when it's announced. But what we're focused on right now is the doubling of the GST, which passed last week. And we really want to get you know, half a million kids covered with dental supports. And we want to get those $500 checks out to people who are struggling with their rent. I mean, the opposition is saying 500 bucks isn't a lot of money. I can tell you, I come from Alberta. I come from a working class family. I grew up in Mooranville, Alberta. And even in 2022, 500 bucks is still a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Uh, and just on that, I was going to ask you, first off, do you care to share with our viewers when sure. you're going to re release that fall economic statement? I'll leave that up to um, Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister uh, Christa Freeland, but when she is uh, able to announce that fall economic state, you're going to see you know, that we're going to continue to work on that, fiscal, that, fis that prudent fiscal track because we have the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7 right now. And you know, as I said earlier, the Bank of Canada is independent. We are going to see a slowing down in the global economy. And Michael, I was at the Asia-Pacific Finance Minister's meeting last week in Thailand, and it was very clear that the whole economic you know, system in the world is slowing down. We're seeing a tightening of monetary policy in response to this higher inflation around the world. And I know that pinches Canadians' pockets at the grocery stores and at the pump, and that's why these targeted measures are really important to put more money in the pockets of Canadians who need it the most. And, and speaking of that, the Toronto, Star did, the Toronto Star did report that Finance Minister Christopher Freeland was warning cabinet ministers any new government spending needs to be funded by budget cuts. So is your government now pursuing this policy of austerity and that we will see reflected in the fall economic statement? I think we, you would call it a fiscal prudent track and that was already telegraphed in Budget 22. I mean, in Budget 22 is a commitment to uh, saving $9 billion a year in current government spending. And so the message to you know, cabinet colleagues, uh, myself included, that we're sending out is, is that we want to make sure that we have you know, responsible investments in Canadians and that we're making those investments on the supply side of the economy. Because look, what we have right now is an economy that's doing well and people want goods and services, but the economy can't respond in time to getting them those goods. And that puts an upward pressure on those goods. And so we want to make sure that we're building infrastructure, that we're building on the supply side, that we have more people in the workforce. That's why the childcare investments, cutting childcare fees by 50% is so important because what does it do? Michael, it puts more people into the workforce. So labor issues, immigration issues, all of these things will help with the economy. And you know, the finance ministers that I met with and the economists that I met with we are going to see a slowdown in the economy, but we are also going to see a pickup after 23 into 24. And so we've got some headwinds ahead, but there's no country in the world better positioned to manage those headwinds and then come out stronger on the other side than Canada. You keep talking about the affordability plan that you guys have and some of those measures. I mean, one of the issues is that every Canadian is now dealing with the cost of living, but not every one of those Canadians actually benefits from your affordability measures. So what are you doing specifically for those Canadians that aren't getting any of that targeted help that you have put out there in the last few months? It's a really good question, Michael. And so if we focus on the doubling of the GST and the dental supports, which will be for half a million kids, and the targeted rental supports, that helps about 11 million families. But if we go back to what we did in Budget 22 and even in Budget 21 with cutting uh, childcare fees in half, People in Alberta, people in Ontario, people around the country are already saving thousands of dollars a year on their childcare fees. Seniors and uh, seniors have their payments, so whether it's OAS, CPP, or GIS, 
Those payments are indexed to inflation. So is the Canada Child Benefit. So are our other core benefits. And anybody, uh, Michael, that's taken the Canada Workers Benefit will have seen that doubled over the last year as well. So that's about 2400 bucks for a family. So when we take a look at all the supports, it really does target middle-class families who are you know, really faced by this inflationary spike. We do intend to see that inflation going down. We're into you know, a slowdown in the economy, but we are going to come out better the other side. But it sounds like you're saying that other than the targeted measures, there's nothing that is broad-based for Canadians, that they can get that relief that they're feeling now in that pinch, either at the, at the pump or at the checkout counter. Well, doubling the GST and half a million kids getting dental benefits, but, like but we're, with respect, not everybody gets those. With respect, not everybody gets those, Minister Boissonneau. Right. And this is the fine balance, Michael, that we have to have between targeted supports and still about $3.2 billion in new spending, but not spending so much that we're going to increase inflation and make the Bank of Canada's job harder. And we know that these are the right supports to do because they're a small fraction of the Canadian economy, about one one thousandth of the Canadian economy. So we're going to continue to watch the situation. We're going to continue to listen Canadians, but we're going to have to have this really, you know, play, this really clear balancing act between inflation and targeted supports to those who need it the most. Associate Minister Finance Minister Randy Boissonneau, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. So that's the government's line on this. What's the opposition's take? We'll get that next and ask them if they think the government is really doing enough to insulate Canadians against the recession. Don't go anywhere. You won't want to miss this chat coming up on Power Play. Has the Prime Minister been briefed? by his officials on how many Canadians will lose their homes because of the higher interest rates that his inflationary policies have caused. We will continue to be there for Canadians uh, during the challenging times ahead because that's what Canadians expect of their government. So if you have a variable mortgage rate or a line of credit, you're likely feeling a little anxious today. Banks have already adjusted their interest rates to follow the hike by the Bank of Canada today. The central bank moved it up to 3.75. That's 50 basis point jump. And that has been the last increase that we had was back in September. Now, this was the central bank's sixth consecutive increase this year alone. Earlier, we heard from Associate Finance Minister Randy Boisneau, and he said his government was pursuing a fiscally prudent approach. But is the government's response enough to quell Canadians' anxiety over a potential recession? Let's ask our panel of MPs, Conservative Treasury Board critic Stephanie Cousy, she's here in studio with me, and NDP National Revenue critic Nikki Ashton. Thank you both for being here. Ms. Cousy, I'll start with you. What does this government need to do to really alleviate the financial burden that these higher interest rates bring? Sure. Well, we're hearing a lot of talk from economists about um, other external factors which apply to other nations in the world. Of course, that includes a reduction in supply chain uh, in China, for example, as well as oil prices, as we're seeing with the crisis in Ukraine. But we're coming to a consensus that the main problem is inflationary spending. In budget 2022 alone, we are now at an expenditure of 56.5 billion dollars. So the government really starts uh, needs to start thinking about tax relief for Canadians, about keeping more money in Canadians' pockets. It sounds like they're pivoting, though, because they're saying they're trying to pursue a fiscally responsible track. Is that good enough for you guys? It's not good enough. Uh, they still have a plan to tax, 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 Michael. That includes 
a January 1st increase on payroll taxes. It includes um, a triple, triple, triple of the carbon tax by 2030, as you've heard my colleagues and I mention in the House of Commons. Only a couple of times. Only a couple I've of only times, heard that a couple Michael. Of times. <laughs> and as well, increases on fuel, gas, and home heating as of April 1st of this year. So this is really the time for the government to reconsider their wasteful spending and to keep more money in the pockets of Canadians. Nikki Ashton, I'll bring you in here. Your party has that supply and confidence agreement with the government. Now, part of the government's proposed affordability measures include those dental care benefits, which are one of the planks. But that doesn't help every Canadian out there because it doesn't go to every Canadian. So are you concerned about a recession? Well, I'm very concerned about a recession, but it's not the dental benefits that are going to cause it. Look, first of all, I think we really uh, need to acknowledge that already working Canadians, people on fixed incomes are feeling a hit. You know, they're feeling it here in my part of the country. Uh, things are getting harder and harder for Canadian families. And all the while, we are seeing record profits from the richest in this country. And uh, we know uh, that uh, these these profits uh, and, and certainly uh, the, the kind of uh, greed that we're seeing driven by uh, uh, Canadian corporations and the ring, the richest among us, are is contributing uh, to the inflationary crisis. And unfortunately, uh, the Liberals are refusing to doing to do anything about it. And they're also hiding behind the the Bank of Canada uh, and not taking the measures necessary to make sure that we don't head into the severe recession that some are predicting. Ms. Cousy, I was going to ask you. I mean, there's been a lot of attacks on the Bank of Canada by your party. Um, but frankly, all central banks are raising rates right now. Is it fair to target just Canada's central bank at this point on the part of your party? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to comment that it's very interesting for a member of the NDP to talk about um, the types of things that she did when she is part of the costly coalition that is costing Canadian taxpayers so much money. But if we look at other nations around the world, Michael, 51 other nations have provided tax relief. Two-thirds of G7 and G20 nations have provided tax relief. And, uh, pardon me, half of G7, G20 nations have provided tax relief. And two-thirds of OECD nations. So there is certainly a lot more that this government could do. So it's tax relief or bust for the Conservatives, I guess. Well, we certainly believe that um, we have made a commitment, our leaders made a commitment, that for every dollar of new spending, we will create a dollar of savings. And we have committed to no new taxes under but a Conservative government. And sorry to interrupt. But the finance minister is saying that, uh, you know, according to the Toronto Star report, Christopher Freeland is telling ministers that if you're going to look for new programs, you've got to find budgetary cuts as well. That's not good enough? Our leader was way ahead on this. He's been talking about inflation for two years. He's not prime minister he, yet, though. Not yet, but he will be. But and so, he like, came up with the pay-as-you-go model a long time ago. Okay. Ms. Ashton, would you su still support the Liberals if they pursue a policy of austerity? I mean, do you believe that the government should be spending more to make progress on pharmacare instead? Well, first of all, austerity is not the answer. And frankly, we saw it under the Harper years. I mean, it's uh, really concerning to hear from conservatives who claim to talk about working class Canadians uh, that uh, failing to support them, uh, you know, given, you know, through serious programs or structural changes uh, is not the way to go. Canadians are hurting right now. They need support, whether it's in terms of dental care, housing, uh, uh, certainly cost of living. And, uh, and I'm proud of the work that the NDP is doing to push on this front. But the reality is that we need to be going after the richest among us who are making uh, 
record profits. We need to see, uh, you know, a way to, t- to get on the issue of, of those who are, who are cheating on their taxes, those who are evading their taxes. We need to pursue a windfall tax. Uh, and we need to get serious on this front from the federal government. And I also want to say on the Bank of Canada, yes, we respect its independence, but let's also be clear, they are in charge of monetary policy. The Liberal government does set their mandate. And right now, uh, it is very problematic to see these interest rate hikes and unacceptable that the Bank of Canada would be encouraging uh, the uh, employers in the business community to drive down wages. That is not the answer to avoiding a recession. And certainly, uh, we want to see support for working class Canadians right now. Considering the deal that the NDP does have with the Liberals, why is there not more work being done by the NDP to force the Liberals' hand on this? Well, I think we, we have been doing a lot of work and, and certainly uh, pursuing the issue around tax evasion, uh, you know, pushing back on uh, on the Liberals' inaction. Uh, you know, we've seen some movement recently around, uh, you know, you were just showing uh, grocery store images, you know, pushing for uh, an investigation in, into uh, the gouging at our supermarkets. Uh, and uh, we've been clear that uh, whether it's the banking sector, the oil sector, uh, you know, the, the grocery sector, uh, that uh, these windfall profits are on the backs of workers, on the backs of Canadian families and that uh, we need to see the rich pay their fair share and we need to make sure that we are doing everything we can to support Canadians at this time and avoid the a severe recession uh, that is uh, going to take our country further and further back. Nikki Ashton from the NDP, Stephanie Cousy from the Conservatives, thank you both for joining us here today. A new census data from Statistics Canada shows immigrants now make up the largest proportion of the country's population in history. In 2021, roughly 23% of Canada's population counted themselves as landed immigrants or permanent residents. At that point, it was the largest proportion since Confederation. Based on recent trends, that number is expected to rise to 34% by the year 2041. Now, in 2021, 3.5% of immigrants who moved to Canada chose to live in one of the four Atlantic provinces. That's more than 1% higher than in 2016 and nearly triple the proportion that moved to the region in 2006. Quebec and the Prairie Provinces saw their numbers fall over the same period. Well, coming up, repatriated and arrested. Two Canadian women were released from Syria only to be taken into custody in Canada. The lawyer of one of the women joins us right after this. Fundamentally, traveling uh, for the purpose of supporting terrorism is a crime in Canada. And anyone who traveled for the purpose of supporting terrorism uh, should face criminal charges. Well, that was the Prime Minister with some blistering words for the two women who were repatriated from Syria. Kimberly Pullman and Umaima Shwe were both taken into custody when they landed in Canada. Now, 27-year-old Shwe was arrested yesterday on terrorism charges at the Montreal Trudeau Airport. She has been under investigation by the Integrated National Security Enforcement Team since 2014, and Pullman was arrested this morning. Her lawyer, Lawrence Greenspawn, says authorities are seeking a peace bond. Pullman traveled to Syria in 2015. Her lawyer says that she was lured there to marry an ISIS fighter. Pullman spent three years in a Syrian detention camp with the families of ISIS fighters. In 2020, Pullman's sister told Human Rights Watch that she was totally traumatized after years under ISIS. Two children who were with the women at the camp 
were also repatriated. So what happens to Kimberly Pullman now? Well, let's bring in her lawyer. Joining me right now is Lawrence Griesbon. Your, Kimberly, your, uh, your client was arrested today, but she's not facing charges just yet. Authorities are seeking a peace bond. What are the conditions of this peace bond, and do you expect her to actually face charges at one point? Well, I, I don't expect her to face charges. If uh, she was going to be facing charges, uh, presumably they would have treated her the same way they did uh, Ms. Shui, and that is they would have arrested her on, on various charges. What they did is they... Uh, I got a call at 4.30 in the morning this morning from the RCMP advising me that she was in Montreal, uh, that she'd been arrested, uh, on the, and, and that a peace bond was going to be sought, and uh, that she would then be transferred to uh, British Columbia and uh, appear before a justice of the peace, and uh, she would be expected to sign a recognizance with various conditions in place. I don't know what those conditions are, and but that she would be released uh, within the 24 hours. So um, she's not facing criminal charges. She's being asked to uh, enter into a peace bond, uh, which is... Uh, uh, which is fine. Uh, you know, we'll get the disclosure of what evidence they have and uh, see whether or not uh, she's prepared to enter into a peace bond or not. Um, what I find fascinating is the Prime Minister coming out saying, uh, you know, that we should be uh, charging these people uh, for going to uh, uh, Syria in, in, in a, an effort to support terrorism. Uh, we've been saying for three years, go ahead, charge them. Get them out of Syria. Yeah. Bring them home. Charge them here where they can get a fair trial. That's what we've been asking for and that the Canadian government has uh, not been doing that. And that's why we brought the action in federal court to uh, force them to do just that. And to that action in federal court that, that, you know, for repatriating other Canadians, where is that fight right now? Well, I represent uh, 23 uh, men, women and children, all Canadians, who have been detained in detention camps and prisons for uh, upwards of three years. And uh, our action is going to go pr proceed before the federal court on uh, December 5th and 6th. And uh, the hope is that we will be able to convince the court that the uh, Global Affairs Canada needs to do the one thing that the Autonomous Administration of Northeastern Syria has been asking for, and that is to simply make an official request for the repatriation of, its, uh, of our citizens, of our Canadian citizens. Twenty other countries have done it. More than a thousand people have been returned to their uh, native countries. Uh, there just seems to be no good reason why Canada can't do the kind of thing that they just did today right. with Kimberly Pullman and Ms. Shui. Is Ms. Pullman in BC right now? Has she landed? That's uh, my understanding is yes, that she's landed there and uh, she'll be processed, uh, as I say before, just so the peace uh, very shortly. Her sister, as we reported, you know, told Human, Human Rights Rights that she was traumatized. How is she doing? When I talked to her, she was first delighted to be back in uh, Canadian soil. Uh, but uh, I think the primary reason that she was uh, uh, repatriated is because of her very uh, precarious health. So uh, that's, that's going to have to be uh, looked at as soon as possible. When you consider the reason that she said she went over there to marry a, mm -hmm. an ISIS fighter, I mean, is there an issue of people who are being radicalized because uh, of, of various issues and is the government doing enough to address these issues of preventing people from being radicalized to go over? I, I don't know how you know what, what role the government could have in terms of trying to prevent people from being radicalized 
But, you know, where they have evidence of people who have been involved in or supported uh, some type of crime overseas, we have the mechanism, we have the laws. Uh, the Prime Minister just referred to them. And we also have a huge department within the Department of Justice that are, that are there. They're, they're full-time uh, being paid lawyers and paralegals and so on. They're there in order to uh, investigate and prosecute uh, the cases where warranted. That's the mechanism that we should be using, not letting them rot for three years in prisons and detention centers. Lawrence Greenspawn, lawyer for Kimberly Pullman. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for interest. After ducking questions yesterday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford was back in the legislature today where opposition MPs repeatedly questioned his decision to fight a summons to appear before the Emergencies Act inquiry. Since the summons was issued, we haven't heard a word from either the Premier or the former Solicitor General. Hiding the problem does not make it go away, Mr. Speaker. I ask the Premier, will he come clean and commit today to speaking with the Commission? This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Federal Emergencies Act. From day one, Mr. Speaker, for Ontario, this was a, a policing matter. It was not a political matter. And the opposition knows, Mr. Speaker, politicians don't direct the police. That the opposition will come to her. Lawyers for Ford and then Solicitor General Sylvia Jones have filed an application to quash the summons, citing parliamentary privilege. This week, the inquiry is hearing from police witnesses, most notable, well, former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly, who resigned over his handling of the Ottawa convoy. He's up on Friday. Coming up, recession worries. Should Canadians be concerned a recession is on the horizon? Or did today's interest rate hike keep a recession at bay? Desjardins chief economist Jimmy Jean joins our press gallery panel right after this. By raising interest rates, we're going to slow demand in the economy, and that will relieve price pressures. We also know adjusting to higher interest rates is difficult for many Canadians. And we are assessing, you know, we're watching that impact very closely. But unfortunately, there, there is no easy out to restoring price stability. That was Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem today after the central bank raised the key rending late for the sixth time in a row since March. Now, the goal is to get inflation back to around 2% in this country. It currently sits at about 6.86%. It's on a downward trend, but it's a slow one. Monetary policy is a balancing act, but to raise rates too quickly it could affect mortgages. To go too slow, though, inflation rates continue and it drives consumer prices higher for Canadians. Let's bring in our press gallery panel to weigh in on this. The Toronto Star's parliamentary reporter, Tony McCharles, political reporter, Zian Loom. And our special guest is Jimmy Jean, vice president and chief economist for the Desjardins Group. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Jean, we'll start with you. Who is the most affected by today's increase in the interest rate? Well, certainly uh, the highly indebted uh, borrowers, uh, people with uh, variable rates, uh, mortgages in particular, uh, over the past couple of years who uh, might have thought it was a good deal to get into a mortgage at the you know, 1% uh, rate area. And now they're seeing those uh, rates increase uh, over and over. And it gets to a situation where some 
uh, people actually see their uh, payment not being sufficient to cover the interest portion, meaning that they will have to increase their payments and, as a result, cut back on expenses elsewhere. There have been some rumors that this would be a raise of uh, upwards of 0.75. We only got 0.5. Is that a good sign? Well, I think it's... Mr. Jean, uh, sorry, Mr. Jean. <laughs> I think it's a good sign in the sense that you are seeing the Bank of Canada... Uh, acknowledging that uh, this is painful, that this will produce, uh, you know, a slower growth trajectory. Indeed, they're opening the door to actually the possibility of a recession. A recession has been our official forecast since the summer. Uh, I still think the Bank of Canada is too optimistic. I think the Canadian economy is highly sensitive. Actually, it's one of the most indebted economies in the world. So I think uh, the uh, lagged effect of uh, monetary policy uh, tightening will be felt over time, and that will produce uh, outright contractions in GDP in 2023. But I think the Bank of Canada is starting to acknowledge and rec recognize that, that feature and I don't think the Bank of Canada is in a place where it wants to produce a severe recession or a financial crisis. So this decision to step it down, I think, is a nod to the risk of overdoing it on the rates front. Tonda, Canadians were warned that rates would continue to go up by the end of this year. Do you think that warning Canadians of higher interest rates was enough to prepare everybody? Well, it's pretty hard to prepare people who have credit card debts, how, uh, mortgage debts, car loan debts, uh, to suddenly sort of just clear all that up uh, in anticipation of what those interest rates would look like. Look, uh, there, there, many households are challenged, as Mr. Jean said. Um, so I think that, you know, seeing the Bank of Canada maybe not crank it up as fast as people, bankers and economists were expecting, oh yeah, that, that is some comfort. But the Bank of Canada has also indicated that it's going to keep going down this path. And, you know, there's a lot of Canadians, especially uh, nearly three years into a pandemic, that don't have the kind of financial flexibility that perhaps bankers think we have. So, uh, you know, the warnings, you know, sure, bring it on. But um, the reality for a lot of households is it's real, really crunch time. It's not just crunch time on their debt side, but on their expenditure side for basic food, basic, uh, you know, fuel for heating their homes and running their cars. All their expenses are high right now. So, so, look, I don't think that the warnings are the thing that, uh, that people, people face realities, right? Realities of living. So, so that's what they're grappling with. Yeah, and this government, Zian, is facing a reality as well. I mean, they're going to have a fall economics statement coming up. How much of this and the fears of a recession are going to factor into how they're crafting that fall economic statement? I think substantially because the government not only has to manage uh, like an oncoming domestic recession, but they also have to manage and waltz around the potential ripple effects of recessions happening in other countries, like namely our big trading partners in the U.S. and the other G7 countries. Um, we saw you know a precedent set with this government in the summer responding to affordability worries uh, with uh, the tabling of C30 and C31. So there's a precedent set there with responding with uh, GST top-ups and rental relief. So if the government is potentially um, not ready to respond with those similar tools, if and when the difficult days do arrive, then they risk being uh, perceived as uh, people who, you know, a government in MIA, an MIA missing yeah. government kind of... Uh, and out of touch. Yeah, out of touch government. Yeah. Mr. Jean, I'll bring you back in here. If the Bank of Canada can't get inflation 
into that sort of 2% target area. Does that mean that inflation is not going to be transitory but entrenched? Well, I think that's the concern. But uh, uh, there's a place where you, you have to trust the process as well. Look, this is biting and it's biting a lot. Uh, I can just give you an example. We have monthly numbers for the Quebec economy. We just recorded four consecutive months of contraction. It's the first time we see such a stretch uh, since the 2008-2009 recession. So uh, there are signs that the Canadian economy might be in a recession as we speak. This is an important risk. Uh, so, um, mm -hmm. you know, if we have a recession, you're going to see inflation go down. As a matter of fact, when you have recessions, usually your problem is deflation, not so much inflation. So I think we got to trust the process. Uh, so it was a right step to take today to uh, dial it down. I think we're going to continue to see rate hikes. I do agree. But I think that uh, by mm -hmm. the end of the year, we should be at a place where the Bank of Canada is going to be more comfortable uh, assessing the impact of the cumulative rate hikes, uh, how the economy is adjusting, and also indeed taking into account what's going to happen elsewhere, because uh, I don't think Canada is going to be alone. I think the uh, European economy is a stepping in recession, and I think we might very well see the same thing in the U.S. Tana, I got about 45 seconds less. It sounded like you wanted to get in here. Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, that's what the indicators are showing, aren't they? That the U.S., that Europe is 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 being challenged right now. And we still see um, a whole bunch of other factors around the globe, such as how China is still still dealing with COVID and how they are still, uh, you know, have, they have a zero COVID approach. And so that's affecting a whole bunch of other things, supply chain, the whole supply chain issue, isn't it? So, look, a lot of this is still playing out. China itself is seeing lower growth, though they are still in a growth phase. So um, I think that for global decision makers these are challenging times and especially here Zian for Canada I mean the NDP part of their support is all about dental care and pharmacare does that have to be on the chopping block now you think I don't think the chopping block but maybe the freezer uh, for better days ahead because you know it certainly puts pressure on the government to deliver more thrifty budgets uh, also pressure on Krisha Freeland to continue her pre-recession real talk tour mm. of you know <laughs> bracing people's expectations to expect some difficult days ahead. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a hard balance because there are real consequences for a minority government. Um, you kind of mentioned at the top, like, you know, if it's, it's a delicate balance with this. Um, you, you know, the looming recession and, you know, massive new spending could put us into a deeper recession right. sooner, um, especially when the Bank of Canada is encouraging, you know, to us to not spend. That's the whole point of these interest rates. So if the government kind of acts independently and, you know, kind of um, antithetical to what the bank is doing right now, um, that also risks the government being out of touch. Yeah, for sure. Jimmy Jean, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being on the Press Gallery. Tond and Zian, you're going to be sticking around. Still to come, trying to block ties with the king. The Bloc Québécois tabled a motion to cut ties with the monarchy. Is it realistic or just a political stunt? Press Gallery will be back with the deputy leader of the Bloc Québécois. Stay right here. Are we certain that the best interest of the people we serve is always the same as the best interest of the Crown? I doubt it. 
Calls for a royal send-off? No, no, not talking about the last season of The Crown. The Bloc Québécois motion, though, to sever ties with the monarchy was defeated today by a margin of 266 to 44 in the House of Commons. But does this renew the conversation about Canada's future with the royals? Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet calls the monarchy archaic and a thing of the past. But the world is gearing up for King Charles III's coronation next year. So is now the time to talk about cutting ties with the crown? And can the bloc realistically move that conversation any further? Let's bring back the press gallery. Toronto Star reporter Tonda McCharles, Politico Ottawa playbook writer Zian Lum, and Bloc Quebec Walk deputy leader Cassine Nomardin. You are all here. Thank you so much. I want to just first get your reaction to this, Madame Normandet, to the defeat in the House of Commons today at this motion. Well, one thing that uh, I, I think is interesting to see is the fact that it was not only the bloc versus the rest of the House. It, uh, there were uh, 10 people from the NDP, uh, one independent, one green, one liberal who voted with us, and a lot of abstentions. So that in, in itself, it is interesting. It shows that maybe there's an appetite for discussion about cutting the ties with monarchy. So it kind of set the table in a way f to a further discussion I think. Why set the table now though because a lot of people are saying we need to deal with this affordability crisis not the monarchy. Why now? Well, dealing with that doesn't prevent us from <coughs> dealing also with inflation and other topics as well. We do that all day. There's different committees in the House working on different uh, bills at the same time. And But there was a window for it. It's, it's been a, lo a long discussion that we had over the past years and decades about monarchy, but since there w there's a change of ruler uh, right now, it, we, we felt that it was a proper time to discuss it. And we announced it quite early uh, after uh, Queen Elizabeth died, that we'd w we would want mm. to have that discussion. Mm. And it was open already. So there was that discussion, Zian. And, you know, a, a lot of people look at this about the, mo the motion and the realistic uh, possibility of it going forward. Is it still worth having the discussion even though the motion was defeated? Uh, I think it's worth having an iteration of the discussion because, you know, look, Canada is a country where the colonizers didn't leave. And this motion from the onset, looking at the reception of it in the House, had a very slim chance of passing. But, you know, credit to the bloc for, you know, starting this conversation, a very provocative discussion. Uh, they definitely did hit uh, some sort of note because, you know, just look at the voting results from the NDP, kind of split the caucus down there roughly along racial lines. So. The discussion has hit something. Um, you know, severing ties with the you know marquee, is that actually going to do anything to meaningfully address this legacy of you know colonialism, of repression in this country? Probably not. Um, so the point of the motion, I'm not sure uh, where it's going to go moving forward, but if it's uh, manifest into something like, you know, friendshoring 3.0 uh, with countries that also want to maybe are interested in leaving the Commonwealth, if they are open to having this discussion about reparations, mm -hmm. uh, that would move this kind of perennial topic going forward. Tonda, worth having the discussion at least, especially when you consider, as Zian sort of mentioned, you know, you have Caribbean countries that are looking to move out of it as well? I think that 
it's not the block motion that either started or advanced mm -hmm. uh, this conversation. It's been going on for decades, uh, and it happens to come up every time there is a huge gaffe by some member of the royal family. And right now, the current king is someone who has made gaffes in the past. So I would expect that whatever his sort of behavior and conduct and uh, demeanor is going forward, it might be the thing that might trigger more Canadians to jump on board any uh, any suggestion that we should cut ties to the monarchy. But I have two words for you. In terms of cutting those ties, it would require a massive constitutional change that would require unanimity. And the two words that I think of is Meech, the Meech Lake Accord and the Charlottetown Accord. I mean, our last previous attempts to really change uh, the Canadian Constitution failed. And um, I think that no government is willing to jump on board. And frankly, I don't think that the Bloc Québécois would actually only open a conversation about cutting ties to the monarchy. If the Bloc Québécois ever got its hands on opening the Canadian Constitution, it would be a whole other question of sovereignty for Quebec. So I don't see that the, the Bloc is actually advancing the conversation, but I think that keep your eyes on what Canadian public opinion feels about the current state of the monarchy in the, in the months and years ahead as King Charles takes the throne. Madame Novardet, so is this a backdoor to opening the Constitution? Uh, well, I think we can do that in good faith. There's a, a general agreement in the population that we should abolish the monarchy. You see that in polls. There's more people wanting to cut ties than people wanting to remain in a constitu uh, constitutional monarchy. So it, it could be something that could be done uh, also uh, with a sense of uh, finance. You were talking about inflation earlier. It's 70, almost 75, uh, 70 uh, million dollars that we spend on monarchy every year. It could be spent on social housing. It could be spent on uh, pensions uh, during inflation. It's something that also appeals to people. So there's an interest, I think, for that. And I think it could be done in good faith with a discussion amongst provinces and the federal. So we are totally open to that. And I think the, uh, the debate has started in that sense with the motion we brought forward. But it's so difficult to have consensus on almost anything and even just talking about health transfers and discussions with the provinces. How do you expect provinces, Senate and Parliament all to get on the same page? Because that's what it would require to do this. I, I recognize it is a task, but it's worth having the discussion. And that's what we, we did today. There's an appetite for that in the population. It, it resonates uh, and it should be heard by the different levels of governments. That, that's our message today. We, we know it's not necessarily easy, but we, it could be done in good faith. That's our message. Zian, what do you think about opening it in, in good faith? Uh, seems pretty like messy work, probably expensive. Uh, it's going to be a real challenge to kind of, you know, convince the Canadians that this is uh, time for that kind of conversation when we're looking uh, at a recession that may last 9 to 12 months. Where do you think this goes from here, Madame Navalde? Sorry? Where does it go from here, though? Can we actually move this forward? Uh, well, I think it started the discussion. We can have the, the discussion uh, amongst ourselves. It started the discussion among, amongst MPs as well. So it, I, I think it, it, it's going to go forward uh, by itself, in a way. The discussion has started. We weren't expecting for it uh, to, to, to be a result right now. But at least we started the discussion. And, it could, and arguments were, were brought up. And uh, fine, money is an issue. Uh, you mentioned that it would be costly to abolish monarchy. But monarchy itself is costly. Right. So the, there's an incentive only with uh, the financial issue to move forward and cut ties. So I, I think the, the ball is rolling, in a way. I appreciate it. Unfortunately, we have to get rolling 
off this show. Tonda Zian, a deputy leader of the Bloc Québécois, Christine Namalde, thank you very much for joining us. That's our Power Play Day in Politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We'll be back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone. Thank you.